0: Can you talk about kind of the implementation and the execution? How did that look at Armbray and maybe talk a little bit about the framework?
1: Sure. Well, I was was, uh, approached by Steve, uh, the principal to sort of, you know, really look at, um, he had already, I think the team had already begun to sort of engage with this idea of thriving, resilience, flourishing.
0: Dr. Michael Unger is the founder and director of the Resilience Research Centre at Dalhousie University. His groundbreaking work as a family therapist and resilience researcher is recognized around the world. In this episode, we talked about how Michael's research team brought the science, our educators brought the pedagogy, and together developed a curriculum that is being utilized at Armbray and schools throughout Canada. I am Megan Jackson, and this is the Armbray Academy podcast. Okay, Michael, why don't we start from the beginning? Tell me about your background, and then we'll get into how you landed at Armbray.
1: I hold a Canada Research Chair in Child, Family, and Community Resilience, and I'm a professor of social work at Dalhousie. So it's nice to be very, very close to Armbray. We're Mm -hmm. literally, uh, you know, neighbors, Neighbors. if you will. And um, for a long time, I've been interested in this idea of, well, what makes kids survive when they're in really more difficult circumstances, whether they're stressed or anxiety or whatever it is that's going on in their lives. For a lot of time, I've been doing a lot of speaking, a huge amount of research globally on this topic, but I never really had a curriculum. I never had the time to put together sort of a concise package that could actually be used in classrooms and that type of thing. And then, unfortunately, the pandemic happened. And I had a lot of staff were basically stalled in the research projects that we were going. And this project had, you know, this was always in the back of my mind to do. And so we took advantage of the time and I had the staff around who were looking for work and we put together this what we've called the R2 program uh, that is meant to foster resilience. And the R2 stands for being rugged, the first R, and being resourced, the second R. So that's kind of how it came together.
0: For those who might not have been around when this program started at Armbray, can you talk about kind of the implementation and the execution? How did that look at Armbray? And maybe talk a little bit about the framework.
1: Sure. Well, I was was, uh, approached by Steve, uh, the principal, to sort of, you know, really look at, he had already, I think the team had already begun to sort of engage with this idea of thriving resilience resilience, flourishing. That was the mental health component of the education experience at Armbray. And that had been on the plate for quite a while. And uh, Steve had reached out to me, which was literally like, he didn't quite, I think he just kind of realized that, oh my gosh, like literally my neighbor is this, I mean, I don't want to sort of over-tap my own horn, but kind of have a bit of a national international reputation in this field. And uh, so we kind of, you know, met for coffee. We sort of got sort of talking through this idea and I was looking for a space that we could pilot this innovative new curriculum and develop it in collaboration with some amazing educators who are really super tuned into the kids. And Armbray and Steve and this whole staff came on board and said, you know, we're, we're really interested in partnering on this. So Armbray became, in a sense, the incubator for this R2 program. And we were worked with the teachers and some of the youth, uh, some of the parents, the committees to identify what would be the most important factors for our young person, that what would they actually need to show this resilience? And the way the program is based is, you know, I, I kind of draw down on about 52 factors that have been you know, it's the, the big science stuff, right? You know, this mm-hmm. all these different things that have gotten lots of research globally. But I said to Ironbury, you know, we said, well, of all those things that could make kids do well when they're under stress, for your group of kids, what exactly would this look like? And they came up with a short list of 12 factors, things that they thought if they concentrated on the students at Ironbrae would be better able to cope with stress, especially, of course, this was all happening during the pandemic.
0: Right. And so um, from that, were there any inspiring findings or any interesting findings that kind of came out of implementing this framework at the school?
1: Yeah. So what we were able to do is we we went through what's called a Delphi process. It's kind of a technical way of basically think of it as putting post-its up on the wall and everyone agreeing to what is the most important things that we can do with kids. And we came up with thinking about that for, or at least, you know, for, for students these days, if we could emphasize things like improving their communication skills or critical thinking, maybe helping them understand empathy better, or that endless one that parents always want to talk about motivation, perseverance, grit, those kinds of ideas, problem solving, self-esteem. Those are also these individual qualities, things that we know make kids much more rugged. And those were identified as really important to, to the kids at Armbre and subsequently to indeed students at other uh, schools across Canada and internationally. But we also wanted to focus on other aspects of kids' lives that were more if you like external things like were they using social media appropriately did they have opportunities to fix their mistakes when they made them were they able to show good decision- making skills when demanded of them did they have the kinds of peer supports they needed and know how to sort of reach out to their peers when they needed them. Um, Was the school able to put appropriate expectations on the kids behaviors and indeed give them the right kinds of consequences or hold them accountable for their actions when they made mistakes, which all kids make. And when you begin to think about an environment that, boy, if you start talking about an environment that helps kids use social media and holds them accountable for their mistakes and helps them make friends better. And develops empathy, communication skills, and everything else. And you start talking about this really wonderfully rich experience beyond the you know we're going to teach you to read and write and you know right. do do the, do the math right, which is what Armbray excels at as well. But it was suddenly like thinking about for a kid to really function well in the academics, they also have that have to have that social and emotional life, that mental health life, very solid as well. So so basically coming around, to it, we we not only implemented a curriculum based on those things I've just been talking about, which or 12, and we start with six in year one and six in year two and all that kind of stuff. But we actually did some evaluation of it. And we showed that if you put kids through this curriculum, you're actually showing a positive benefit. You can actually see the the scores actually jump up. But you can also sense, if you talk to teachers in the school, you can also sense a little bit of a change of mood or a climate in the school, along with so many other things that the school is doing. It's not just the R2 program. It's about a whole climate, a dedicated staff, right, who are saying, we're going to make this school a place that is very much where students can thrive. Mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally.
0: Right, and so through this through this program, we've altered kind of what our daily routine looks like. So every Thursday after we have our assembly, we have an advisory period that is dedicated time where the teachers and the advisors will um, talk about social emotional learning, and it's it's cut out in the week. It's part of our routines. So I think that's an amazing opportunity for the advisors to really dig into whatever's going on in the students' lives.
1: Well, it's a great it's a great point because one of the neat things that I learned from uh, working with the team at Armbray was, was very much about how to implement this. I, I really struggled. I'm not a, an educator. I'm, I teach at a university. I, I study resilience. I do a lot of other things, family therapy, etc. Not
0: necessarily working with five-year-olds every not day. Not working
1: with five-year-olds <laughs> every day or for that matter. Yeah. So it was like, okay, so I, I know this stuff is good for kids. I got the science behind it. I can implement it, but how do we, how do we, you know, bring it in? And what the, what I learned from the teachers really profoundly was they said, you know, let's make this a theme for the month. Let's take an idea like problem solving or good decision-making or being, you know, having reasonable expectations put on you for your behavior. And let's, let's think about that across the school. Let's create a theme. For that particular module, at least for that division of the school, you know, the grade level right. uh, cluster, and that seemed to work much better because I think that's the way kids learn. They they don't just sort of want that little moment. It's better when it's reinforced and sort of brought up as a way of interacting. And from what I'm understanding from the conversations I've had, that's been a little bit more. These assemblies, mm. creating a theme, um, getting it sort of worked into whether it's an art class or a, the speci- yes, there's a specific time when the skills are taught in. And so the, during the advisory program, of course, you know, the kids can dig into the ideas, but what we have found, and I'm I'm, I'm using the same ideas in other school boards as other schools uh, around the country is when they can um, say, okay, so we, you know, we're going to do this little theme here on empathy. So let's also talk about empathy. Let's make sure that we're we're sort of like thinking about that, how we decorate the hallways that month. Mm. Let's think about how kids are going to interact. Let's think about, you know, what, what, what they might be seeing seeing or small exercises, uh, things that are going to happen on the playground. So we we get this sort of whole school um, approach to this particular idea. And therefore, you can get through six different themes in in a reasonable, in a school year, certain months are less amenable to this than others. And um, I, I think it's been showing some some nice success.
0: Well, it's neat that um, it's the same across all divisions. So the lower school, the middle, middle school and the upper school, they're all kind of embarking on that one challenge. If it is problem solving, they're all learning about problem solving in the same way, but just a little bit differently, just based on their age groups. Um, so it's cool that the the thread of learning is is consistent through the whole school.
1: I And I, I, I really like that. And what's been a lot of fun, and I must say, because I mean, educators have so much access to content that, you know, I wouldn't know how to, you know, what kind of little videos or, or or storybooks are appropriate for a seven-year-old, much, you know, much less for necessarily a 13-year-old. But it's been really a lot of fun looking at the curriculum. So in a sense, what I, the way we did this was we brought my team at the Resilience Research Center at Dow, we brought to the school the science. We brought, uh, we have these long briefing documents on the science around a particular factor like problem solving or consequences. And then we distilled that down to a shorter document so the teachers could easily digest it, sort of like a three three to five pager. And we also brought in some exercises, suggestions, and we brought in assessment tools and all kinds of other stuff to basically grease the wheels, keep, keep things going. But what's been really magical has been watching educators apply their expertise and take those ideas and then create the manuals, the the, the, the guidebooks that are age appropriate for each different, uh, not only just in the divisions, but mm. of course, within the divisions, there's a large difference between a kindergarten or a grade one classroom and of course, a grade five, grade six. And so it's been really interesting watching them. I've been having a lot of fun going to the little videos myself and watching little storybooks read. And it has been interesting watching that content because educators are so good at staying abreast of how kids learn. And so while I bring the science, I can tell them what kind of factors are important. Uh, it's it's how you convey that, how you teach that, the, the side of the pedagogy, where Armbray has been absolutely critical. And if I if I might, Armbray curriculum became the basis for a standardized version of the R2 manual, which we then made freely available on the web. Mm. So any educator anywhere in the world can now download an adapted version of the Armbray cool. curriculum, and acknowledges Armbray as mm-hmm. contributor that, that curriculum now is being used uh, elsewhere. Now, in some cases, it's being slightly adapted. The, the fundamental, the same. The framework's the same, And many of the pedagogical tools, the way that's taught has been inspired by, you know, the really, really smart people who are doing the educating mm-hmm. at, at Arbor itself. And
0: you talked about how, so you brought the science to the school. So can you talk a little bit about um, like the biology of resilience and talk about maybe a couple of stories that might summarize this for for people can kind of visualize?
1: Well, sure. We know that our, you know, uh, if you're talking about neuroplasticity or otherwise, you know, trauma or potentially traumatizing events, when they occur, they get underneath the skin. They create what's, uh, whether you want to talk about epigenetics. I'm not an epigeneticist, but my colleagues who are, you talk about how we these experiences that are external to us change us, not just at a neurological level, but also at a physiological level, we we trigger we our immune system becomes much more stressed when you know, etc, etc. And if we begin to think about ourselves, not as these little modules, like we're sort of separate puzzle pieces, but we're sort of a comprehensive whole, then we begin to understand that our how we think and how we feel is also tied up to our everything from our gut bacteria to our uh, neurological uh, synapses firing and processes and stuff like this. So we're we're all sort of a whole being. And the thought the, the 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 emerging science of resilience, and what I specialize in, is saying that we need to think about all the different systems. So not only do we need to get good food into little bellies, so that they have, you know, a good mi- a microbiome that can then, res- you know, produce a healthy immune system, which has a cascade effect on anxiety and depression. It's all connected. But we also have to think about, you know, what kind of messages are they getting from their, the people that love them, that care for them, right? Are they getting that kind of very condemning message? Are they getting in some cases for overprotected or overly pushed children, the snowplow parent that, you know, won't let their child suffer any consequences to their actions. And so the child never learns how to be accountable or (laughs) what you know, to, to be responsible for themselves. Um, we begin to sort of understand that those social interactions, including with teachers and parents and others and their communities and peers, all of those things also create this cascade effect on whether or not a child's gonna be able to withstand stress. But it keeps going, by the way. There's so many good examples, and they're not all, these aren't necessarily from Armbray, but like for instance, one of the more innovative things I did was I was working with um, the National Circus School, sort of affiliated with Cirque du Soleil as well. And they were trying to introduce circus arts into, into curriculums, and this has been going on across. Across Canada, not again, not necessarily at Armory, but elsewhere. And the the idea there was that if you want to teach a kid, you know, how we get we get so focused on teaching kids physical things like, okay, now we're going to play volleyball, now mm-hmm. we're going to do the basketball. But what we've actually discovered is this: this guy named Dean Kurlarz really talks about physical literacy, what you really want as a child to be able to bounce a ball, not necessarily play basketball, but to have that skill to hop on one foot or this kind of thing. And so, circus arts was introduced as a way of teaching physical literacy, less focused on the actual performance of of a particular skill and more about a generic set. Can you tumble? Can you somersault? Can you jump? Can you hop? Can you climb? Can you can you use your body in just such a way? Can you juggle? This is a all these different skills were suddenly about creating a, a sort of a mind body continuum. You're, you're, you're much more integrated into your body. And the other nice thing about these things and this is also part of the story of resilience is being much more inclusive, right? You're trying to find ways that honor different children's ways of coping. Every parent knows that their child is pretty unique. So the trick is how do you get them the right mix of activity? Those are activities that that children often who love the repetitive nature or the you know the individually pursuit of something can actually find within this. My point here is, the more we create environments that facilitate children's capacities to find their talents, their skills mm-hmm their personal expression, the better we are at at making them more resilient to stress. And schools are fundamentally part of that story Hmm. because kids spend a lot of time with those educators and they are, they are looking for those positive identities. You know, they look, learning communication skills. They're learning how to be with their peers. They're learning to take responsibility for their actions. And so much of that occurs in the classroom.
0: Yeah. So Mr. Clark um, often says, and we often bring back to the fact that the sense of belongingness at a school is crucial. And I think that has been put on the forefront, having Armbre be that place where everybody belongs. Kids are free to make mistakes and try new things and feel at home and feel safe. And so I think it's really cool that that theme really is present in our new strategic plan. And I think it kind of just echoes what you just were talking about.
1: I, I love that. And and it it really does speak to the idea of leadership, doesn't it? A, a good leadership mm. in a school. I see this everywhere I travel, certainly. Um, when you have good leadership, that sort of sets the right tone and says, you know, we're going to create this climate where every child has a place in the school. Um, I would actually just, uh, again, I was just d- doing some work with a, another school board elsewhere in Canada, and they were, they were really extending themselves to they know, especially in a, you know, that sometimes kids wanted to play sports. But, you know, there were only so many spaces on the school teams. And so what the school did was they they realized that there was always this group of kids. It was kind of a weird paradox, right? They were saying, so we tell you that, you know, to get on the volleyball team, you gotta get better because you didn't make it this year, but then we don't necessarily have any other way for you to play volleyball other than a few, you know, so how are you gonna get better to get onto the team next year? Hmm. So what they did was they responded and said, let's let's just think about this from the kids' point of view. So they set up a lot more extracurricular. Awesome. Uh, They just said, you know, we're gonna do intramurals. We're gonna emphasize that we're gonna reach out to a child and say, you know, we see that you're really wanting this, so let's give you some opportunities. I so often hear about, you know, people will say, you know, my kid's not engaged at school. Parents will often say that. But it's partly about trying to find, you know, kids will navigate, they will vote with their feet, they will vote with their bodies, and they will move towards where they feel competent, noticed, acknowledged, you know, that they feel important, that they can make a contribution. And to the extent that, you know, a child can find that, that's always really important. But you know, on children also. By the way, I know parents. Parents love this one. I, I think we sometimes forget. The children also really like structure. Mm. They like. Routines. They like routines. They do, and you know, in fact, that's why you know. This is a little bit of the science, but you know, like when the Red Cross responds to kids post disaster, wildfires, uh, uh, you know, major floods, whatever, even school shootings, gosh, God forbid. One of the first things they do as the mental health intervention is get kids back to school into the routines, which is a mental health intervention. And I think we sometimes forget that pattern. So, you know, often saying to parents, you know, make sure that you have the bedtime routines. Families that have a, a meal time, put the Put the screens all the way sit down for a meal three times a week has been shown to not only increase body you know the health the physical health of children and parents by the way mm-hmm. but also creates more what's called family cohesion a sense of belonging a sense of, of connectedness um, which also is tied into eventually academic performance and all these other things, right? So you're kind of you're kind of like you know having a meal with your kids that's you know cooked uh, uh, and and where the screens are off has sort of a cascade effect again this kind of ripple domino effect across a child's life where they're going to feel better and indeed they're going to be better ready to 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 learn and ultimately to make a better contribution.
0: After the break, Michael will share some practical strategies to help children thrive and become more resilient in the classroom. We discuss how we can empower children to become more independent and what is Michael's why? What is his drive? To learn more about the R2 Resilience Program, visit r2.resilienceresearch.org. What are some strategies that parents can take home um, and teachers can implement in the classroom um, to create a more resilient student and child?
1: If we start from the routines, probably the other one is holding kids accountable, some consequences for their actions. Let them solve some of their own problems. I know, I know these you know, the, the push parent, that snowplow parent wants to, you know, push everything out of the way. When a child makes a mistake, having them go back to their teacher and say, I'm sorry, or I have to fix this, and not always defending them, but teaching them how to defend themselves is definitely going to be a big part of it. Um, never forget that, you know, I kids need to learn to talk to strangers. Ooh, that's just scary. <laughs> not the really strange strangers, just the mildly strange strangers. But, you know, there's that kind of notion that we really need children to be out in the world and learning how to ask for the things that they want. You know, I always challenge parents of younger children to not sit there in the stands when their child, their six year old is at a soccer practice or something. Go away, leave the child, let them fall down, skin their knee and have, you know, a bit of a crying fest and have the coach actually have to deal with them. Because in that moment, the child is going to learn about self-regulation, about self-care and about reaching out for others for help. And if the parent swoops down on the stands and picks up the child and runs them off the, the, you know, the, the, the soccer pitch, because they've skinned their knee, all that wonderful learning is gone. Mm -hmm. Not to mention, just you know, children need to feel like they know how to advocate for themselves when they feel like they're being treated unfairly. They know they need to be able to um, uh, have a sense of belonging. The same thing that you just mentioned at Armbray, which is being so emphasized. We often just ask kids to show up. Like you know, Grandpa's birthday party is happening. And it's like you know, you come out of your room and you be here instead of no. You're gonna kick. You're gonna make Grandpa's cake. Yeah. Like, and, and yeah. And then everyone says, well, it's going to look like a Pinterest fail. Grandpa is going to be much happier with the Pinterest fail, with the icing sliding to the south, and you know, everything's off.
0: That makes great family memories. That's
1: going to make the memory. And I think sometimes we forget that in this mania to have that perfect holiday season, that perfect, whatever uh, you know, we so often miss that our children can, can, can participate in this. I, I, I vividly remember an episode where my child was, my kids are in their twenties now, but you know, a few years back when they were, my son was playing soccer and we had a meeting of parents up on the Halifax commons. They had just played the team and the, the coach was divvying out all the tasks. Who's going to bring the, who's going to bring in what, fill the water bottles. Who's going to bring and set up the nets. Who's going to do this. And there was like 20 parents. We were all sort of standing there on the, in this windy, cold afternoon, sort of like penguins in, in a herd <laughs> off to the side was our sweaty uh, teenagers, all our, our young teens, all sitting on the ground with their cell phones, planning out their weekend events and stuff. And here we are, these busy, busy parents all being told how we're going to organize. All the fundraisings and hanging the nets in the balls, And I looked at the absurdity of this going. Why would I do this? Not because I'm I'm heartless or anything, but because I'm going, these kids here are the ones who totally need- Totally capable of They're capable and they need the life lesson. So they are the ones who should be doing this kind of stuff. So I often think for parents, how many opportunities do we have to give kids a more powerful, powerful identities, opportunities to be caring contributors to their communities? I mean, do we set up those? And I'm not just making these ideas up. This is the kinds of stuff I study. When I go into really, disadvantaged communities. I say, okay, how are children? People often ask me, how do children get through and be so resilient? Say, well, because They have to be caring contributors to their community. Mm -hmm. They, somebody leaves them with real chores that if they don't get done, they have genuine consequences, right? Not making your bed, but actually at what point do you actually take your teen or your eight year old, 10 year old out shopping with you? Do you give them a part of the list to go buy the, you know, I often jokingly say buy the junk food for the Mm -hmm. family, you know, but begin to understand the value of money and decision-making and um, the contributing, what they can actually contribute. How many people get a pet for their, for, their child, get your eight year old up in the morning. And say you're going to go walk the dog around the block. It's like, Hey, but I got to get up even earlier before school. Well, yeah, because it's those natural consequences. It's us, it's us saying, and you know, a child who's on uh, the, other big I hear about is, you know, children abusing the internet. They're always on the, you know, their phones or the gaming and stuff. I mean, some of this is blown out of proportions. The new research coming out of McGill and university of Calgary and others is actually showing that, you know, if a kid is actively engaged online and it's not endless likes and you know, that kind of thing, and it's not for eight hours a day, with some caveats. Generally speaking, being online is not terrible, especially if they're putting on content, not just drawing down content. It's not
0: just aimless or mindless it's not just aimless, yeah. con- consumption, but it still means
1: boundaries and, you know, like turn it off at night, get some sleep. That is, you know, if you look at Gene Twenge's work on this and others who are researching this, you know, we're seeing kids, their sleep hygiene really is awful in many cases. The endless screen time pings, that, that stuff is having change on the neurophysiological level of our kids and they're not getting enough sleep. Um, and that's having consequences for their anxiety disorders and this kind of thing. And that is manage th- those things we can measure by visits to our emergency rooms at our hospitals in Canada. Um, you know, these are things that parents can do to control. They can give their kids opportunities to shine along, structure and routines, reasonable expectations on the behaviors. And gosh darn, that becomes very similar to the list that Armbray is emphasizing mm-hmm. in its own classroom.
0: Yeah, our kind of vision of the school is to create lifelong learners, engaged citizens and critical thinkers. And I think a huge, Part of that is creating a resilient child and helping them, helping them them become more resilient. And through things, we, we offer lots of cool programming through the amazing shake, through athletics, through public speaking and volunteering, all of those things. Um,
1: yeah. And, and you know, the, the strange thing is I think sometimes we live in a, I don't know if you've been a bit worried about this as well, but we live in this world of everything is traumatizing. Hmm. You know, every, every time a child is a, you know, bullied every time a child has something bad said to them every time they feel uncomfortable, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of people are sort of worried about this kind of um, almost this nanny generation that's being raised by, you know, this kind of, constantly surveilling their world. So they never feel uncomfortable. But I, I, I'm kind of guided by again, as a scientist in this field, it's, the, the, you know, I think we've misunderstood trauma somewhat, The the real the word that's probably a better description of an event is it's this is a term developed by a guy named George Bonanno in New York, and he says he talks, he doesn't talk about traumatic events, he talks about potentially traumatic events, because no event in and of itself nothing, even war exposure or otherwise, is not necessarily going to linger and create long-term trauma. There's enough evidence to suggest that. But any event could do that, depending on how we respond and the supports we get and other things. So when we started thinking about that, we said, well, okay, yeah, that was a pretty bad little bit of bullying that the child experienced. But it doesn't have to be a lingering experience if the child afterwards feels like they found a friend who helped support them, Mm -hmm. if they were believed, if they found some coping strategies, and if they were able to feel like they were heard and a consequence was meted out to the bully and they were kept safe and a variety of other things. Those kinds of full climate, full response that involves the community of parents, schools, and everything else, as well as the child's own personal actions, does not mean that the child is gonna be triggered by a future event where somebody criticizes them or yells at them or something like that. Like That's a healthy, resilient kid who's had the supports, the resources, in place, there has the rugged qualities to cope with the next potentially traumatizing event. And that's, I think, more the language when I meet progressive educators or schools that have really hit this right, you know, just in terms of the climate, that's what they're doing. They're, they're kind of inoculating kids against the future of, you know, feeling, uh, you know, wherever problems happen, and they are going to happen, they are going to find a toxic boss, they're going to be on a date or Whatever situation they're going to be in, some peer group, and it's not, it's going to be awkward. It's the nature of life.
0: And I think parents a lot of times are, are quick to react, to say, if this, something happened in the schoolyard or if something happened in the classroom, they're trying to protect their child. And sometimes they say, well, I'm going to pull my child out of the situation and make a drastic life decision, whether they go to a different school or whether they um, hold them back for a few days, when in fact, that's not necessarily the right thing to do.
1: The evidence is quite... Clearly, on the other side, I mean, short of, you know, extreme physical violence and a completely unresponsive institution that says you're wrong, right, which I don't think is the case, you know, it's far better for the child to re-enter that and to go through the anxiety. Mm. In fact, if I might, that's one of the things that have most worried me. And I see this at the university as well. We have a lot now of accommodations for anxiety disorders and, and this, and I have no particular, I have no issue with that. I think this is wonderful that we've created more inclusive environments, but often I'll get For instance, uh, uh, not myself, but a, a colleague of mine who teaches in the undergrad program recently got a list from the accommodations officer and said, you know, here's 10 students in your class of 100 that you cannot call upon because you're calling upon them for a question, like, you know, Mm -hmm. in the Socratic method, sort of, what do you think about that? Would trigger them and they would feel very awkward. And I thought about- Don't we
0: all, if we don't know the answer? Well,
1: so my point of this is, okay, so if this is an accommodation, I I can understand why we might want to do that to make the classroom a safe place that doesn't trigger. My problem with it was, what is the accommodation never offered the solution? Like, okay, so I do that for how long? Are we talking two months? Are we talking three years? What is the plan- out of that. Because obviously there is no resilience for that individual. That person will eventually be on a job site and the, you know someone's going to be at a meeting and say, yeah, we're really trying to fix this computer programming problem. Uh, the, the the software isn't working. Um, Paul, do you have any ideas? And if Paul was protected from that for all four years of his university education, then what's going to happen there? So, so this kind of thinking brings me back to we should be as inclusive and sensitive to you know, people's social locations. I know Armbrace strives for this as well, but we also, the obligation is to get, you know, people, young people to, to be able to cope with future stressors. And so when we do the accommodation, let's also build the scaffolding to solve the problem so that we don't just simply say, you know, the, the, the parent who withdraws their child from that potentially bullying situation or something like that. The next step has to be, I, I've got to get my kid ready for the next time someone is toxic in their life. So how am I going to teach my child the skill set so that they can actually get back in the game a little bit later, fully functioning? And I think that's where, you know, really good educational programs can, can be part of that, but it's also implicates Parents and safe, you know, safe schools, safe communities, and those kinds of things. And, and and this, you know, this is the ladder so that the child doesn't get back into the university and can't be ever asked a question, but is learning that, okay, I'm going to feel extremely uncomfortable when that happens. Maybe this semester I can't do it because first year university is pretty stressful. But by second year, you know, I have had the coaching required to get myself at least to be able to say, I don't know the answer or I'd really rather not respond or some sort of, you know, simple way of exiting the conversation. Those are good life skills, right? Those are things that we need. And this is the wonderful thing. We actually know, again, a little bit of the research here, when schools implement, like Armbray, implements a strategy to help a kid through a particularly difficult time. And what we know from work, say, by Kenneth Dodge or others, if that same program is implemented at home, so that you have both the parent and the educator kind of using at least somewhat the same strategies.
0: Coming together and... Coming
1: together and talking, yeah. When you get that sort of similarity, you get a kid who's going to really fly in terms of their improvements and their ability to cope with stress.
0: Mm. And there's nothing more satisfying and gratifying from a parent and a, from an educator perspective, removing that scaffolding after the student has achieved what they set out to achieve and taking that down and realizing that this, the student has, has come a long way and they may no longer need those accommodations. But I think that was a really, it was a really important visual that you just laid out with setting up a child yes you're providing the accommodation but you're also you have a plan to take that away as well
1: exactly and and uh, i mean certainly some children have extremely special needs uh, please yeah. don't i mean this is not about you know yeah. in some cases we will always have to have a facilitative or adaptive environment and that's thankfully We have, you know, human rights legislation and stuff that allows us to do that as a society overall. You know, I've, uh, you know, it's funny, I've, uh, for instance, I, a while back, I was working with parents whose children all had uh, severe allergies. And these were all children who carried EpiPens. I was working with the, it was like one of these national organizations on this. And I thought, I really did think that they were going to, you know, kind of come to me and say, you know, really, we, you know, you've got to change the world. So our children will forever never be exposed to a peanut. And actually they were the opposite this was this advocacy national advocacy group going kind of saying no 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 how do we how do we bolster the capacity of our children to self monitor enough so they can move out of these highly protected worlds where there is no peanuts in the classroom so they can have the skill set to monitor their lives and eventually be uh, you know in a in a more general cafeteria because mm-hmm. we know that we worry that we're disadvantaging our children because they'll never be able to be in non-controlled supervised spaces that the parents of these kids who carry these epipens were actually saying to me help our kids be able to at least manage their, you know manage themselves so they can be out there in the world with and we don't have to worry hmm. so much about them and i thought that was a really that was a really great message right we want we, we you know any event can be like echoing again george Bonanno, a potentially traumatizing a potentially difficult situation but it needn't be and this Coming fully around comes back to this idea of can schools then build resilience promoting programs that supplement the educational program to to actually give kids some of the skill sets they need to cope when, frankly, life is going to get difficult hopefully not a pandemic, difficult, but difficult.
0: So the last question I have is, um, what is your why? So um, Augie Jones had come in to do some um, sessions with us at the beginning of the year, and he was asking everybody in the room as educators, why are you doing what you're doing? So what is your why? Why are you doing what you're doing?
1: I've just been inspired to uh, young people I was working with. I was a full-time clinician, social worker in the field for years, and I just kept being inspired by just how, not just how kids break down, but if you go looking for it, you see how kids survive and thrive as well under really terrible conditions. And I, I think that that for me just kind of resonated. And and I've, there's a concept called vicarious resilience. If we look for resilience in others, it reaffirms our own values, our own optimism about humankind, about our capacity to cope. And I can't help but think that, you know, when by studying this stuff, by working with families, by being a consultant to institutions like Armbray, I also sort of walk away from those situations just feeling better about the world. I'm less focused on just the psychopathology, that break down the disorders. And that really, I think, resonates with me and maybe echoes a little bit my own personal uh, voyage that I write about and say, I still love you, that, you know, I, I, I basically moved out and was fully emancipated at the age of 16. So that own, my own sort of life history maybe made me just a bit more sensitive to looking for the potential, even when... Um, there could be crisis.
0: Awesome, thanks for joining me. Oh, real pleasure so and fun. all the best. Oh, a really
1: great conversation, thank you.
0: Thank you. On the next episode, we will chat with Jessica Berry and Ashley Matthews Duffett, the Queens of auxiliary programming. We talk about what the CAS program is and our rich co-curricular offerings. And remember, be kind, work hard.